Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Nehemiah 3, right somewhere in the middle. Uh, Nehemiah has uh, chapter 1 has a burden, and chapter 1 is basically the prayer of Nehemiah to get going. He opens a conversation with the Lord and gets called to go help rebuild or finish rebuilding Jerusalem. Chapter 2, he gets the commission from the Persian king, and he prays some more. And then he arrives, surveys, recruits, and then at the very end of the chapter, um, he, gets, he gets mocked. And so he answers them and says, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, are, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He defines a boundary between those people of God that are trying to build something and those people that are not trying to build something with the people of God. And he basically makes a distinction in truth. God's people are united to arise and build, and that and they're, they're called to do something for the Lord, and they do it together. So what we get for chapter 3 is kind of the A-list. These are the people that make up God's people. And the, the differences here, the, dif the differentiation comes in the commentary. So there's lots of names, lots of places, and then in between, Nehemiah sticks commentary about each of them. And in that commentary, we build a picture of how um, different God's people really are. And yet together they're able to do a thing and they do th this idea. So we see a profile or a cross-section of God's people um, way back in history, but it looks a lot like today. And they're going to get to work. So let's get to work. Verse 1. Then Elishib, in the Hebrew that means God restores, the, which is a great way to start the chapter. The high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and they hung its doors. And they built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it. Then as far, far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Elishib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur the son of Imri built. And also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And they laid the beams and hung the doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabal made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, made repairs. So they're either building or they're making repairs in each of these things. There's 42 different portions or groups of people that are going to do work in this chapter. They're each a different section. They're each different pieces. Everybody in the kingdom of God is doing slightly different work. They all have sections that they're dealing with. And this list starts with the Elisha would be the, the high priest at that time. He's the grandson of Yeshua, uh, which came during, when we read in Ezra, Elisha is simply the, the next generation as the high priest. And we see that he rises up in verse 1, which means to take the lead, to step up, or the first to dig in and get the word. He sets the example. And so as it should be, and I think this last era of the Mosaic law before Jesus Again, they get a fresh start on this period of Jewish history. And I think they get the best case scenario, which is the high priest is actually the first one to get to work. You get to Jesus' time and it looks very different, right? They expect everybody else to do the work. And they enjoy their robes. But in this case, he, he sets to work, or he rises up, sets himself in a position to do this, and he makes the example. Um, and the idea that they rise up, again, this is I, the way they phrase this in verse one. It's just kind of like work music when you get going. Like God's people rising up, doing something, engaging. They have the king's approval. They do not have their neighbor's approvals, but they rise up anyway and they get to work. And they organize by, says, with his brethren. So the work of God gets done by groups of family that call themselves brethren or family communities. And the implication here is the priest and his family gets going on things. And they work together and do it. The priests lead the way. This is, again, the best case scenario that the people in the ministry are the hardest workers amongst God's people. They start, and then we're going to see at the end of the chapter, they're part of the ending story too. They're the first to get there. They're the last to leave. 
They're willing to pitch in and they're willing to lead in the effort and time and sacrifice it takes to do God's work. And that's what rises people up in God's ministry. Servants. If a leader isn't working hard, what does that say to all the followers? If, you're, if you aren't working with someone or, or under the leadership of someone where you respect their work ethic, then it gives you an excuse to not have a very good work ethic. But if you're working under somebody that works harder than you, at the very least, you can respect them for their work ethic and go, wow, that person really is going all the time. So in that sense, we have a good high priest. At Passover, this crew of priests would be the ones that inspect the mostly lambs or sheep coming in for sacrifice. I think it's kind of appropriate that they're the ones that fix the sheep gate because that would be closest to where they live. So as they're doing that work, this is going to be the, the, the group of people that's there. In fact, when you look at the gates, in, in chapter 2, 13 through 15, there is a list of Nehemiah's path as he goes around the city. You remember that from last week? And it listed a bunch of locations as he went around the city. The valley, the serpent, refuge, and then in this chapter, we're going to get the, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, and the water gate. And that's, that has nothing to do with Richard Nixon. So you have just these, this image of these kind of these gates that go in kind of an order. And I might be reading a lot into this, but the images are in perfect order. The valley would be kind of this dark place. The serpent, obviously the fall of mankind. The refuse, what the serpent made of mankind. The fountain and the king's pool is just this idea of God's blessing. And then the sheep gate, there's the lamb that comes in, and then the fish, an image of multiplying or the multiplication of the church. And then the rebuilding of the old gate, keeping the old ways, but the water gate, the fresh Holy Spirit coming in. And just this progression of human history seems to be in the perfect order. I don't know if that's how Nehemiah intended it, that when he wrote it. But really, you could do a whole study of the ministry of Jesus Christ and what God is doing through human history just by looking at each of these gates in turn and what the names of these gates symbolize. So verse 1, the sheep gate, this is where the shepherds would bring the flocks into the market. It'd be the closest gate to the temple, which is where the priests would live. Even a ruined wall would be more of an obstacle for, an, for bandits than a wrecked gate because gates are at ground level. When the gate's not working, it's full access in and out of that space. So they fix the gate, it's where they start, um, and then they consecrate it. This is one of the only groups that actually consecrates what they do. The word there means to set apart. And they put a blate or a, 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 they put a blessing on it and then they set it apart. Even as a gate, they set or consecrate this first gate apart, treating their work like a tithe, if that makes any sense. The first thing that gets done is the sheep gate and then they consecrate that gate as that this is God's gate and they're giving it to him. So this idea, obviously like the idea of being set apart and consecrated for God's work. John 1, 29, John sees Jesus walking towards him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, with each of these gates, we're seeing a little image of Jesus as we go there. And then it says, there's a phrase there that says, Then as far as. This first working group basically does three sections of wall between the gate and the two towers. Again, nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. The God has favored is Hananel, and hundred is translated for a hundred. And Elishab is comes in and helps with these processes. So the priests do probably one of the larger sections of the wall, or they put in the most work. And so we're going to see as we go through the chapters, some of God's people put in very small sections or small amounts of work, and other people put in big amounts. And it has a lot to do with what they do for a living. So how much time do they have to give over to this ministry effort and how much time do they have to take care of their families? And God, all of these people get listed in God's book. So that says that they're, they're all a blessing to the work of the Lord. Whatever they're able to give, they give. Verse 2, Elishab, um, there's no landmarks or wall sections that, that goes there. And again, you get this sense of like, there's no names for the sections that they do in verse 2, but they're still listed in the Bible as thanks for doing the work. And some people in God's kingdom get kind of recognition through what they do. Other people just work behind the scenes and help out with things. Verse 2 also uses the phrase next to. That conjunction is going to be in this chapter 17 times. Next to, next to, next to. Meaning, by the way, more than just standing next to someone, but the word actually implies to be on top of someone or to build on top of someone. 
So it's an interesting phrase that gets used later in the chapter. It'll say after instead of next to. And I think part of this is like you have the high priest leading the way, but everybody else is building onto that work. And there's this progression of God's people. They're all doing the same thing, building the walls of Jerusalem. But they, they do it in sections. They do it by family. And they build one on top of the other. Like you don't have to start on your own. You can start building off of other people's work and doing that. So God's people work next to one another. They work besides one another or upon, literally. In an individualistic culture, I think this is hard for us to understand in America. And in, in our culture, we can easily be deceived to think that the work of God is my work or an individual work. Yet biblically, that's extremely rare. The judges has a lot of that. But part of the problem with the judges is everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was an individualistic culture. But when the work of God gets done, it's more typically biblically like we see in this chapter or like we see in the book of Acts. It's groups of people with a unified vision for God's work. Doing that work in different ways with different levels of contradiction. Individuals can be unpredictable. They can create disorganization. They can create, they're basically, they can be loose cannons. They can be all over the place. But in this sense, everybody building next to one another, they're all on the same purpose, even though they're doing different places. So it says, also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They put the bolts in the bars. The idea is they built the gate and they built it well. So the work that they're doing has strength to it. And likely this is named the fish gate because it was the one that had the road that went out to where the fish were coming from. So it's likely a gate that was, was pointing north towards Galilee and the Jordan. And anyways, they fixed the fish gate and they, they, the bulk of this work looks like that. Again, an image of Jesus's ministry. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So each of these gates, it's almost like, I don't know if Jesus was doing that intentionally, but the, the gates of Jerusalem have names that are pretty significant. Lots of people work on these gates and get this done. There's no leader named for, um, it just says the sons of Hassanah, but it doesn't name any of the sons, which is throughout the rest of the chapter, most of the sons get named. So again, here we get a worker that their name isn't even written down. It's just a group of sons of, of Hassanah that come out and do it. And again, they're building, they're repairing things. They become fishers. They're between the gates. And they set this apart to strengthen things up. Verse 5 says, next to them, the Tekoites. They, they liked the uh, electronics, things like that. Made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. That's not a compliment. It's, it's recorded, but the fact that their leaders don't show up to work is not a great thing. It's a bummer that their leaders don't do it. But you can see the writing of Hezekiah, the way he puts that is, he doesn't have a lot of respect for leaders that don't work. And if they're not willing to put their shoulders into it, and when they say put their shoulders into it, it's literal, because to build walls, you're moving stone. What you need is large masses of humanity to literally throw their 180 pounds into that rock until there's enough of those built up to outweigh the rock. So this idea of, in the, in the Hebrew, it means to bend the neck or submit to the yoke. The issue with these leaders is that they were too stiff-necked to actually participate and help with God's work. They're too stubborn. And their issue then is obedience or submission. Nehemiah gives credit to the workers from this town, but he records how self-important their leaders were. My guess is that they had opinions about Nehemiah's work and what they were doing. They probably were very opinionated people, but they clearly didn't see the work, the effort, and the mission as worth their time. And it's now recorded in the Bible. That's not a good way to get into the Bible. Um, but in then, then again, at the end of five, Nehemiah phrases it, to the work of their Lord. In other words, they call Yahweh Lord, but they're not willing to do Yahweh's work. They can't be bothered or give their actual time and life to what God has for them. So these represent a group of people that maybe call themselves followers of Christ, but their lives come first and Christ comes second. And that's these folks. Now I'll get on to verse 6. We'll just keep going through these. I suppose we did groups of people this morning too. Moreover, Jehoiada, which means Jehovah knows, the son of Peresh, which mean, or Paseab, which means limper, 
Meshuzalam, which means friend, the son of Behoseadah, which means with counsel of Jehovah. They repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melathiah, delivered by Yah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Marathonite, Maranatagaya. The men of Gibeon and Mezpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. So in verses 6 and 7, we get Gentiles. Gentiles are listed. They're those people that love the Lord and they want to serve. And Nehemiah lists them with everyone else with barely a distinction other than the fact that they're, they're Gentiles that helped on this project too. So since the beginning, I feel like I'm a broken record on this, this, the Gentiles have been with the Jews since they left Egypt. And at every major revival or movement of God to do anything, the Gibeonites are there. And they're with them and they're, they're, there's a mixed multitude or these groups of people that are not Jewish that show up to help. Verse 6, do note Jehoiada, Jehovah knows, they're naming their kids Jewish names. So they've fully come into the family in that sense. Um, the word... Uh, the old gate there is, is old gate because it's next to the seat of authority. And they even talk about the governor's residence. This would likely then be on that side of town. And you have this idea of these things being rebuilt. Uh, again, as in the days of old. And this, this vision of like, how does this relate to Jesus' ministry? On that day, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David, Amos 9.11, which has fallen down and repair its damages, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Amos is probably talking about Nehemiah's work, but it's also true of what Christians do. We don't come to the law because the Pharisees have told us to. We come to the law because we actually love the God that made it. And so we celebrate the law, we stick onto it. Meranothite, nobody knows what language that comes from. It's not Aramaic, it's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's not Arab. No one has any idea what language this comes from. Uh, they're first listed in David's administration, and this is all we know about them. They were donkey keepers when David was king. So it's some group or some tribe of people that David brought into the family, and here they are hundreds of years later, still in the family. Uh, they're not donkey keepers, or they're not noted as donkey keepers. Um, so you have this unknown group with an unknown place doing inglorious work, and they've been around for hundreds of years. And they're part of the strength of Israel. And I, I just celebrate that. I, I grew up kind of thinking that Jews didn't have other, there was a biological group of ethnic people. But it's never been an ethnic group in the Bible. It's always been those that follow Yahweh. And so here they are again in that list. Residents of the governor would be like when other, when the Gentile king of Persia shows up in Jerusalem, this is where he gets to stay. So all major towns would have a governor's residence uh, where the leader would be able to seat. Later on, this becomes Nehemiah's seat, but his name is left out of the text at this point. I think that's humility. Next to him is Uzael, the son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths made, to re made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So there's people that Work in luxury goods, goldsmithing and perfuming, these people had money. Because to, in order to do either one of those crafts, you had to have the money to buy the materials in order to make the craft and sell it. So these are wealthy people that have, you know, you could say these were kind of white-collar workers. These people had jobs that were not moving stones all day and menial labor or farming. Uh, they stayed fairly clean doing perfuming and goldsmithing. And Grant knows goldsmiths are just better than everybody else in general. But when it comes to God's work, I, I just love the fact that it says they made repairs. They too put their shoulders to the work and dig right in. It doesn't matter where people come from in God's kingdom or what job you have out in the world. When you come to God's people, none of that matters anymore. We just serve, we dig in, we do the work, and we do that. So even these people that do have money and work in luxury goods, they humble themselves before the work of God and say, I'll serve where I need to serve. And, and when they make repairs, it just says as far as the broad wall. So kind of this indistinct section of wall. And again, next to is there, we're going around the city in order. And these people would have started doing their work on top of the work that the next section of people did. So the broad wall is named for its thickness. This has been dug up. 
Uh, there, it's a 20-foot wide wall, so it's been excavated. If you go to Jerusalem, you can see the broad wall. And, and again, these are all places that are there. What's interesting about the broad wall, and I thought this was interesting, goldsmiths and perfumers are not people I think of as stonemasons, right? The broad wall, when you look at it, is made of a jumble of rocks, and it looks like kids put it together. It's not a well, you know, when you see like the Temple Mount and they're these perfectly cut, huge, massive, eight foot long stones and you can't even get a piece of paper between them mostly. Like these, this, that's not the broad wall. The broad wall is what kids do in the backyard. Like it is a jumble of stones. They're not even really mortared together very well, but dang it, it's 20 feet wide. So the goldsmiths and the, the perfumers aren't very good at making a wall. But what they do is just raw workload. And it's a lot of little stones. So they weren't big people, arguably, either. So they, they go out and they stack up these stones. And they, they put in the work. So First Chronicles 4, 40. Uh, and they found rich, good pasture. And the land was broad, quiet, and peaceful. Broad in the Old Testament is always a very good thing. And it's just this, it's thick, it's fortified, and the word being added, the title of the wall, it's used like a proper noun as though the name of it became the broad wall. So they're not just describing it there, they're naming it. God doesn't look at your skills that you bring into the church. He looks at the work you do when you're in the church. And these people, I, I don't know why, but I fell in love with these people. These are good people that don't know how to do anything right, but dang, they're willing to work. And I think people driven to help God's work are far greater than people that have skills and talents. And oftentimes as, as humans, we elevate the skills and talents and we think those are what God needs from us, but really he just wants our heart. And honestly, go home tonight, Google search the broad wall, look at it and see if your heart just, just doesn't say, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> These guys are so sweet. Or they're used to working with small things as goldsmiths, so they do this kind of thing. In fact, what's interesting about the list, and this made me think about the list in chapter 3 too, we don't see one stonemason on this list, yet all the work they're doing is stonework. We don't see one carpenter named on the list, even though they're hanging beams and bolts and gates. So honestly, God does this work in Jerusalem, and from, from what we know from the chapter, they haven't, at least they haven't named any of these people as having expertise in these areas. But they do have perfumers and goldsmiths helping out. Verse 9, next to them, Rephaiah, healed by Yah, son of Hur, which literally means whole, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, they made repairs. Now there's a leader of note, a leader that made work. Next to them, Jediah, praise Yahweh, the son of Harahumph, split nose. Remember when Ezra came over and their, the first wave had a bunch of these nickname kind of things? Remember that? But the sons of those people, they started naming with Yahweh in the names. And you can see, I think 9 and 10 are really interesting because you just have this group of people that there's kind of a pattern here um, where the, the son is getting named a more Jewish name, but the parents were named kind of Babylonian slave names. So they made repairs in front of the house next to Hattish, assembled the son of Hashabayani, regarded by Yahweh. And then here's another one, Malkijah, my king Yahweh, the son of Haram, which means snub-nosed. And, and Hashab, which means considerate, the son of Path Moab, the pit of Moab. Right? So you have this, they repaired another section or piece, as well as the tower of the ovens. Um, What's interesting, so go back to 11, Mal, Malchajah, or however you say that, the, the, my king Yahweh. In Ezra 10, verse 31, this is one of the people that had to send away a pagan wife. So this is somebody that was chastised and corrected by Ezra, but years later, like 15 years later, he's still there willing to jump in on God's work. I like this guy. I like a person that can take correction and continue to go forward with God's people. A lot of people, when that sort of thing happens, they're just, oh, I'm done with Ezra, I'm done with all of this stuff. But his past failure doesn't stop him from serving God in the future. Awesome story. So they finish one portion, and then they just keep going, this idea of, of moving on. So they repaired, the son of Pitmoab repaired another section, 
as well as the tower of ovens. This is our first group that's done two, kind of they did this and then they did that. Other than the priests, here's a group that actually takes on multiple areas. Tower of the ovens, they call it that because guess what's built into the side of this tower? Ovens. And initially, like one of the commentators said, this would be really hot work. And, I, and then it occurred to me, you're not doing stonemasonry while they're running the ovens. So I thought, I just wanted to share that, that sometimes commentators are just wrong. And this was one that this would be really hot to work by the tower of ovens. This would be hot, painstaking work. And I'm thinking, they're not going to fire up the ovens while they're doing the stonework. But either way, it would take some craftsmanship to build this because you'd be building proper ovens in the side of that tower, which was largely a huge chimney to get that smoke away from it. If they did fire up the ovens, they're also closest to the bread because this is where the bread gets made. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Here's another leader, only this leader, slightly different commentary, has all his daughters helping him out. Enough to be like, this would stand out. Like, and they would just go, that's the guy, him and all his daughters are doing work. So here's a guy that maybe doesn't have sons, but at the very least, he's got tomboy daughters willing to pitch in and do work. And I can tell you as a dad, when you got a daughter willing to do manual labor, there's a little bit of pride there for that. You're just like, yeah, my daughter can jump in with the rest of them. So these are women that are willing to work and they're willing to pitch in. Again, here's a picture of God's people and women are included in that picture. And, and, I, and again, this is an odd debate that we have in American theology right now about the place of women in the church. Women have always been in the church. They've always been part of the body. They may have different roles in that body, but there's no problem here that Shalom has his daughters working with them on the, on the wall. And there's no real distinction there that somehow, there's not even a hint that they shouldn't be helping on the wall. In fact, it's kind of a note of pride. Look at these young ladies helping out. Everyone helped. I think that's the point Nehemiah is making. Everybody helped out. And also, this is father-daughter bonding. I can't imagine anything better than hanging out with Katie doing masonry for a whole day. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Not only that, but this dad is teaching his children to serve, and nobody's above work. Nobody's above getting their hands dirty and digging in and putting their shoulder to the stone. Listed as exceptional, but I'd also say this is kind of unique and beautiful and wonderful at the same time. So then you get a, the list of spots that Nehemiah surveyed only comes up in verse 13. So he went around the city and surveyed all the work. So far, all the work hasn't had not one matched name, but then in this little section, we get a bunch of the names that are matched. Hanan, the inhabitants of Zanoio, or whatever, repairs the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits. That's a quarter mile of stone wall that they put together. As far as the refuse gate, the note here is they did a thousand cubits of work. This is an amazing. So some of God's people are actually really productive workers and not the people that built the broad gate. But these people, this is a lot of work. And Malkajah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Herkaram, which means house of the vineyard, they repaired the refuse gate. And they built it and hung its doors with bolts and bars. Shalon, the son of Kol Jose, leader of the district of Mizpah, they repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with bolts and bars, and repaired the, the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. So this is like a park area. They didn't just do walls. They did a fountain wall. They did these pieces. And they make, again, some of God's people, they don't just do work. They do work that's beautiful. And there's an artistry to this group that we see in these verses. And not only that, they built the fountain gate, covered it, hung its doors with bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the Pool of Shalom by the king's garden. All of this area that they did are taking these old things that we saw before, rebuilding and putting value back into them. There is a new work going on, but they're also rebuilding the old works that were there. Sometimes like hymns are awesome for worship music, but they do get old after a while. And so you get people that come in and they do a new thing, but they might take an old hymn and build it up with a modern arrangement, and it's pretty beautiful. And they fix up the old things, or they bring back those things that have blessed God's people. Some of God's work remains 
even in rebuilding old things by making them a new thing. And Jesus said, it's far easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. When we as a church build ourselves up, as it should be, sometimes we take things like God's law and we put it back on the pedestal where it belongs. God's law is beautiful and it's precious. So notice of the things that get repaired and rebuilt, there's one thing that was named in in the last chapter when Nehemiah took his tour. There's one thing that is not listed in here, and that's the serpent well. Again, I might be reading too much in this. There's one thing that doesn't get rebuilt. The serpent well, it, it either is the pool of Shelah and they've renamed it, like, but they're not going to rebuild the serpent. They are going to rebuild some of the other things that have fallen away. They're going to take things that are broken and make them healed, but the serpent well doesn't even get mentioned in the repairs. And I just, again, I, I see layers to this. Verse 16. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk. This is not the author of Nehemiah. Different Nehemiah. Leader of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David the, to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. So in verse 16, we see after him. This is not next to him. This is after. And we see after getting used 16 times. The next two and the after, if you put them together, are used 33 times through this chapter. The following, it means to work after someone is to be following someone in place or in time. So these groups are not building on other people's works, but they're building after other people's works. So this could be, could be a few different things. One, you got Nehemiah and his group, and then we're going to see a couple groups where it doesn't name where they worked. So it could be that Nehemiah took a week or two, ran out of time, and another group took over that section. So they're working in a chronological order, one after the other, but not on top of the previous section, if that makes sense. Uh, or it could just be that these projects happened after the other projects. The whole project took them about a month and a half. So they all just kind of like, everybody all hands on deck and they got these walls built. Happened very fast, historically speaking. But we do see that God's work grows and it expands. And I, I think it's interesting. Sometimes God works, grows because we build on the work of others. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Sometimes God work grow, God's work grows because we follow other people that are doing God's work. So building onto another believer or building after another believer. And this is kind of the model of the church. In the book of John, Jesus says, follow me seven times. And the whole idea is, if you can see how Jesus walked and lived his life, you can follow after Jesus. And do that. I know I'm getting a lot from the word after here, but the, it's a good example and, and they're consistent with how we see this idea of following people in the church. Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, for you yourselves know that you ought to follow us. It's an instance where the disciples didn't say follow Jesus. They said follow us for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day. So in what ways can we follow other believers? In their work ethic, in the orderliness of their life, in how they take advantage or don't take advantage of other people, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And in that sense, as believers, we do pass that on to the next generation. We teach the people around us how to follow Jesus. And you can say, follow me until you're better at following Jesus directly. And then I'll get out of the way. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how people should follow us and then follow Jesus Christ. So you meet people and their lives are screwed up and you're like, hey, you know what? Try just hanging out with me for a while. And just until, when in doubt, pitch in and follow those that know how to do the work of Christ until you can figure out how to do it for yourself. Those that serve the most, therefore become natural leaders in the church because other people follow after them. I want to be more like that person because they have the fruits of the Spirit that I'm looking for. This is where discipleship comes in. We value in the church, we value people that work and that toil. And again, I'm getting tons out of the word after here. We're inspired by people that pave the way. And in the church, we respect those people. Jesus taught the same thing. The first shall be last, last shall be first. Those that know how to serve the most are the people that in the church, we respect those people the most for good reason. And, and in that sense, we follow after each other 
as a larger effort to follow after Christ. So both after and next to are going to get used for the rest of the chapter. Verse 17. After him the Levites, good, about time they showed up, under the Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs next to him. Hashabiah, leader of the district of Kelia, made repairs of the district. After him their brethren under Bava, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kelia, they made repairs. So here's two groups of people that both come from Kelia, the same area. And one group starts, another group finishes. So they just, they work differently than every other section, but it doesn't mean they're working wrong from every other section. And I just thought of how different churches operate that are all godly churches, but they do things differently. And this is what works for the Kellyanites. They don't work all at the same time like the Tekoites. They work in shifts, and one comes after the other. And next to him, Ezer, which means treasure in the Hebrew, son of Yeshua, leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory in the buttress. And after him, Barak, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elishiab, the high priest. Okay, we're coming all the way full circle. The interesting thing here is in verse 20, they add an adjective, or an adverb, I'm sorry, um, saying they carefully repaired. Everybody else just repairs or builds. But this group is noted because they care about their work. So you've got some groups that do huge broad walls with kind of shoddy workmanship, You've got other groups that do great workmanship, but they do smaller sections. And this is a group that what they're noted for isn't the length, size, or width of their work. They're noted for the care that they put into it. They carefully worked. And I just thought this is just respecting other people in the body and how different people work. But their work was one of caring. And to do this or to do another section is also in there. They're willing to do more than just the section that they started with. So here's work to do. I'm going to do that. But then this group does another section, jumping in where they are needed with help. And honestly, you meet people like this, and they're such a blessing to God's body because it's not like I'm done with my job. I'll do nothing else in the body. It's like, all right, I'm done with my job. What else can I help with? They just come in with this attitude of helping out. Nothing like this, and I, I, I think nothing like this is better in the church than to have people like this, that they do careful work, they think about what they do before they do it. You don't show up as Nehemiah and go, oh, that's a nice wall, but wow, you didn't think of using bigger rocks with that wall? You know, these people do really good, careful work, and Nehemiah notes it. I think we should note, too, with all these locations, you read through chapters like this, the highlight of this is the care that's put on the craftsmanship, but also there's this thing on the side, too, where all of these little details beg archaeologists to come look and find it and note it. If we got to the broad wall or if we got to this place that this section of this and they dug this up and it was as sloppy as the broad wall was, then there would be some problems. But I bet if they find this section wall and dig it up, they too are going to note, wow, there was some real craftsmanship going on here. It's not the goldsmiths that did the craftsmanship. It's these other people that did it. And the record of this, these little details, hundreds of little details, are what people dig out when they read chapters like this. Hard to do in your independent Bible study because you're like, yep, 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 yep. And you just skim the chapters like this. But I think as we dig into these, I hope that's a blessing in, in a more intentional Bible study like this. 2 Corinthians 9.5, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to you to, to, to go ahead of you in time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you'd previously promised that it may be ready is a matter of generosity and not grudging obligation. These people that do careful work, they're not doing work because they're grudgingly doing it. And I, boy, that's so important in the kingdom that no matter what you do for the kingdom of God, you do it because you love to serve. You love the people of God. You love being there because working in the kingdom can be hard work. I don't know. Mandy had like four kids the other day. I can't, that sounds like a terror thing to me. I think she had help though, like, right? Corralling kids. That kind of work, you got to do that with a good heart, not because you have to. And grudging obligation is not what God's need. God's need more people like verses 19 and 20 that are, they're doing it. Then they're willing to help with something else. What else can be done? Because the attitude of these people is what makes them special in the Bible. That's what God remembers is the heart they had when they did it. Verse 21, after him, Merimoth, the son of Arijah, the son of Koz, 
repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishabib to the end of the house of Elishabib. That's a pretty small section, but that guy's also listed in verse 4, which means this is another guy that did two sections. Got done with his own section, and he's like, I'm going to go help out the high priest. That guy shouldn't have to do all that. Like, they're doing three sections already. I'm going to make sure the high priest's spot in front of his house. And remember, a lot of houses were built off the sides of these walls because you got one free wall if you built off the wall of the city. So these, the, the houses would often be right next to these houses. So this guy goes off and he starts fixing up the priest's house just to serve and help and bless the high priest. Love this. And after him, the priests and the men of the plain, they made repairs. Priests working side by side of the men of the plain. No section listed for verse 22. They're just helping all over the place. These are what you call jack-of-all-trades. They're everywhere. They're the, the spider monkeys of the church, right? We're just going to be anywhere you need us to be and jumping in. Verse 22, they're just making repairs in general all over the place and fixing things. Verse 23, after him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Binuai, which means built up. I thought that was ironic. The son of Henadad repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Again, odd little reference point. And Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress on the, on, and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. And after him, Pedaiah, the son of Perash, and the word made repairs isn't actually there in the Hebrew at the end of verse 25. It just says, after him, Pedaiah, the son of Perash. End of sentence. God's work includes people, the 21 through 25. These are all people working in front of their own house. And I just want to point out, and I think sometimes churches or people in the ministry can demand a lot of people that are trying to just take care of their own house. And your first priority is your family, your house. And for, to ask more of people that are tending their families, I think is sometimes a burden that we can put on people that we shouldn't be putting on them. So if you're raising two young children, if you're trying to take care of your parents in their old age, tending to your family becomes a high priority. And tending to your family in verses 21 through 25 makes it into the list. This is God's A-team. God needs people that lead healthy families. And if the, the area in front of your house isn't tended to, take care of that first and foremost and get your house taken care of. Make sure your family's in order. Christians can get distracted by the ministry and forget their families. We have missionaries that we celebrate and write books about that abandon their families completely. And they do great work in the missions field, but their families destroyed back in England. It's usually those Scottish missionaries. They were insane. Right? And they go out and they, they just leave their families for three, four years at a time. And they come back and go, well, why is my family a mess? And But these people, they don't do that. They're tending to the area right next to their house. I thought that was interesting. The family, also we get the word buttress getting used a couple of times. And I just thought, how appropriate. The family is the buttress for the people of God. It is that, that part of the defense system that is the bulwark against attackers. If the family's weak, the enemy can attack easily. And, and if the family's strong, you have a buttress. You have a fortress that stands against those attacks. It's essential that's there. And notice in this chapter, just another observation, how many sons of we have. Everybody's the son of somebody, the son of somebody. It's just over and over and over again. The idea of moving from one generation to the next, parents to children, is essential to God's work getting done and doing that side by side with your family. This section then highlights the new works, additions that don't even get mentioned, and God's doing not only repairing the stuff that we saw in the last chapter, but there's also spots getting fixed like the buttresses and the, the corner and these locations we don't quite know. But somewhere, if they keep digging around Jerusalem, they're going to find a spot where there's a tower that sticks out from the wall because they seem to mention that a few times. And so it's just begging people to keep digging, keep looking for proof that these things are where they say they are. Verse 26. Ah, I love these people. If you've been here through the Old Testament, you know how much I love the Nethanim. Here they are again, verse 26. Moreover, the Nethanim who dwell in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate towards the east and on the projecting tower. Here again, we see the Nethanim. 
at every major element of God's people, this group of non-Jewish people are not only part of it, but they're the, they seem to be some of the hardest workers. And you get that phrase, as far as, in here again, like, man, these guys did a huge chunk of wall. They love God. And frankly, I'm one of these folks. I'm not Jewish by birth, but I love God. And I want to pitch in everything I can for God's kingdom. And I would love to work side by side or right next to the Jewish people when it comes to the work of God on earth. Love to. And so just this blessing of these people showing up. They've been here forever. And here's, here we are at the water gate. I think, again, each of these gates. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of this heart will flow rivers of living water. And again, the city of Jerusalem is actually an image or a, a, a picture of Jesus, even in the naming of its gates and what it looks like. And Jesus uses these images throughout his ministry. There is a projecting tower at the end of verse 26. Uh, what that would mean is instead of building the tower into the wall, you'd actually have a tower that went out from the wall. The whole point of building a tower away from your wall was to be able to shoot at people trying to climb the walls. So the point of a projecting tower is so that your archers could get and shoot at the attackers without being in a, in a position. The projecting wall is the extension of your defenses to be a kind of attack position. If you think about the Jewish people in world history and the impact of the Nethanim, the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, the outreach part of the ministry is generally Gentiles. So the, the Jews have been with Yahweh for thousands of years. The Gentiles have been with Yahweh for 2,000 years. Except for the Nethanim. They've been there since the beginning. But this idea of this projecting out or going out into the world seems to be an interesting kind of vision or image there. Verse 27. After them, the Tekoites. So here's the thing. You had next to, next to, next to. Then you had a couple afters. Here's people that are like, like this idea of leadership being one person goes first, another person goes next. Then in verse 27, you remember the name Tekoites, the ones who like electricity. Here they are again in verse 27. So they, the first time they were next to somebody, but they got done with their section and they see these other groups like, hey, if the Nethanim are pitching in on multiple sections, they go and do it too. They repair another section. So it's, it's one thing to do God's work it's another thing to do God's work and enjoy it so much you just want to do more. And they had jobs. They had things they had to do. They had livestock to herd and crops to raise. But they're so excited about being part of God's work that they jump in too. They jump in, in fact, on the other side of the, the great projecting tower as far as the wall is awful. So they actually go right to where the Nethanim are and they work side by side with the Nethanim. If they don't have leaders that tell them to stop, in, in verse 5, they just keep going. And what do they get out of this extra work? They get a double portion of God's word being recorded in their name. Like, think of all the rocks they had to move. And probably one of the younger ones was complaining, saying, hey, Dad, why do we have to do all this? And he's like, because we're going to get named twice in the Bible that's going to exist for all of eternity. And I'm sure as a teenager, they'd be like, yeah, right. I'm not too excited about that, Dad. But that is the credit they get, is they get credited in two different verses in this chapter for doing God's work. What a blessing. What a gift. They'll probably brag about it for all eternity. You'll live next to a Tekoite in heaven and you'll be like, who are you? What's a Tekoite? And they'll be like, we worked on the wall twice. And they'll have the bragging rights for all of eternity. Verse 28, beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs and found each in front of his own house. Again, these gates have images. The horse gate um, could be, or, or if you think of Jesus' ministry, at the end of days, we're getting to Revelation now, there are the four horses of the apocalypse. So that image gets used again in the New Testament. In verse 29, there's the east gate, the gate that Christ is supposed to walk through, right, when he comes back in his return. Right now that gate is walled up and stoned up right now. The Muslims, like, blocked the gate. Like, that's going to stop the Messiah when he returns. And again, tending to and ministering to those people around their homes, end of verse 28, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. And again, we see that theme pop up. Verse 29, after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, they made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, they repaired another section. So the east gate, again, 
in David's post-millennial kingdom, not only does the Messiah walk through the East Gate, but the person who's stationed at the East Gate, just if you want a roadmap, David is going to be stationed at the East Gate. Lots of people come after, after, after. Lots of fruit following expanding areas, affecting people's homes. The ministry that's happening here has these words thrown in that fill these pictures. They start on the altar in the temple in the book of Ezra. Then they work on the walls and gates, which protect God's people. And the list shows the impact. And as we get to the end of the chapter, we see more and more homes popping up. God's work starts at the altar. It ends at home. And the family and the peace that are there, where people live, is where this lands. Seek first the kingdom of God, the sacrifices we give to God, and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. Your home falls back in order. And the, again, you see all this being laid out. I don't think the writer Nehemiah was thinking of all of these things when he writ. I'm, I'm not saying that. I am saying that I think there's a Holy Spirit that's inspiring Nehemiah when he's writing this list. They have to repaired another section. It seems that to have things repaired or to get repaired, you need God's people to do it with a wonderful heart, with a spirit of unity. We hope to see more and more and more of this kind of thing in the church. People looking to help. People looking to do the work and jump in. And these folks served and they toiled and then they wanted more service and toil. And the only thing that makes that happen, I think, is because serving God is an absolute blast. In every other area of life, if we serve it, it actually takes something away. This is the nature of consumption. So these people in this list that come back for more, it, it makes me think like as human beings, we're made to consume. Our whole biology and physiology eats things and lets things go. That's what we do. But I think there's a spiritual piece to that too. Sin is, I think, the only thing you consume is earthly stuff. And you never consume the stuff of the heavens. For instance, I'll just point at myself. I can eat buttered shrimp. And I can have two or three buttered shrimp. But then, as soon as I get done with the buttered shrimp, all I want to do is eat more buttered shrimp. And I will, if not controlled by some sort of wife, and at this point my children, I will eat buttered shrimp until I pop. Because that's how I'm made. I taste something that I like, I want more of it. I can enjoy a hobby in balance, or I can geek out on that hobby, start dressing up, and going to conferences dressed as Elmo. Right? This can happen. Because having a hobby isn't enough. I want to go to the conferences and listen to the podcasts and watch every YouTube clip I can about that hobby. I want to completely consume the hobby. I can read great books. Again, I'm just pointing to myself on these things. I can enjoy a great book in moderation. Or as having the nature of consumption, I can read until I lose my relationships. I can become a bookworm. I can bury myself. I'm perfectly capable of this. You've seen my office. Achievement, money, television, same thing. I, you can consume those things, but it's never enough. You can't achieve enough. You can't get enough titles. I have a lot of pieces of paper that say I've accomplished things. And I can hang them up and fill half a wall but they don't fill my heart. And there's no end to what we can consume as humanity without any fulfillment in our lives. On the other hand, most of the Old Testament is this story of humanity following after things that have no fruit. And they lose themselves in it. We're designed by nature to consume, but why is everything that we consume eventually going to turn into sin as we overconsume it? And the answer is this, Jesus tells us we're supposed to consume the things of heaven. And when we consume those things, the first time we, it's, it works the opposite. With sin, it's appealing and then it becomes destructive. With the things of heaven, it's kind of like, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. But once we do it, it fills us up and all we want to do is more. Think of the first time you just belted it out in worship. It's like it's a little awkward the first time, but once you do it a few times, you're like, that's all I want to do. I don't even care anymore. And then you go home and start worshiping on your own. You listen to playlists. You, you start changing over the things you listen to. Psalm 66, you're worshiping all the time. Think of the, when you study the Bible. Like there is a point as a kid, McRae's were just sharing this, where their parents were like, there's going to be a point where you actually want to know what's in that book. And when that point comes, don't resist it. Go into it. And we study the Bible on a Sunday, but there's a point at which that's not enough for a believer. We're built to overconsume. 
and Exodus 28, reading the word every single day. This book, Joshua 1.8, this book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. Over-consuming. It's not really over-consuming when it's the things of God. Like, like at this point, those things don't destroy me. They build me. It's like building a wall around my life. Worship the word, prayer, fellowship. We do it on Sunday. We hang out on Sunday. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, they were doing midweek studies. They were hanging out. They were going out together. They were living life together. Acts 2.46, they literally got together every night of the week. That's a bit overboard, isn't it? Or is it? They lived together. And they did it. When you get a little bit of fellowship, it's, we're built this way. It's our nature. Boy, I love that fellowship. I just want more of it. So I'll plan a movie night, an escape room night, a ski night. I'm just going to plan things because I love hanging out with these people of God. These are my sisters and my brothers, and I want to spend time with them. Prayer is the same way. It's awkward the first few times you do it, but when you really practice prayer the way Bible says it, and the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we pray without ceasing. We do it all the time. And the more you pray, the more you want to pray. It's the same thing as sin. It's only being, it's putting our efforts into things that actually bear fruit. So, building a wall, putting big stones in place, physical moving of large pieces of limestone. When it's for the kingdom, you have these groups of people at the end of the chapter, all they want to do is more of it. I got done moving stones, now I want to move more stones. I remember when I was a young believer, one of my favorite things is when somebody at church would say, I'm moving, and I'd say, do you need somebody to haul boxes for you? And I, was, I, was, I have a theory, the people that show up on moving day are the people who really love you. People who go back for more movement of limestone in the ancient world, those are the people that really love you. And these people get this double naming that's here, and it's just beautiful. When ki the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared toward man, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration of the renewing of the Holy Spirit. I want more of that. I want to be the type of person that goes back for more, or we like to say all in. Like you just don't stop. More kindness, more love, more mercy, salvation, washing, regeneration, renewing. I abundantly want to please my God, and I'll take another helping of that. And instead of getting wore out in sin, I'm getting revved up with the works of God. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Just take a taste of what God has to offer, and over time your desires actually change. You get Christians that are wrestling with sin too much, part of it isn't that they're not good at fighting sin, it's that they're not good at doing the things that God's given them to replace the sin. Sometimes the miracle of God is the inspiration of his people and he works through them. Again, Nehemiah prayed for this in chapter 1, and then we get to this, chapter 3, and the prayers are getting answered, but they're getting answered through the heart of the people changing towards God. I'll get back to verse 30. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malchajah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nethanim and of the merchants. Again, one of the goldsmiths is like, I love this so much, he's not even that good at it. But he's like, I love this so much, I'm just going to go keep helping. Or maybe he's upping his skills, like he's a great goldsmith, but he's actually going to learn to do stonework because he's hanging out next to the Nethanim. And probably getting some discipleship and training in front of Mifkad, which means command gate, as far as the upper room at the corner, and as far as the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So here's even like all sorts of people jumping in. What's interesting here, and I think I think this is kind of cool. 31 and 32, you're talking about goldsmiths and merchants, right? Rich people. At the end of verse 30, look real carefully, it says he made repairs fares in front of his dwelling. It shouldn't be the word house. It uses a different word. Everywhere else in the chapter, including verse 31 and 32, it says house, or verse 31. So the word dwelling is the, in the Hebrew word nishka. It's, it's a, the word house is bayet. They're two v extremely different words. Nishka simply means a chamber or a room. So you had goldsmiths working on their houses, but you also had this guy named Meshulam working on his one-room apartment. Obviously, I think the image here from Nehemiah is 
you've got this guy working in front of his dwelling, you've got these people working in front of their house. You've got the poor and you've got the rich and they're working side by side with each other. And they're both doing God's work. And this is the miracle. The miracle is in the details. It's in the commentary between the names. The miracle is if you've got men and women, rich and poor, Jew or Gentile, and obviously I'm thinking of the, the verse where it's like there, God doesn't see distinctions between these categories. He just sees the people that serve and the people that don't. So Nehemiah shows all groups of people, both low and high, rich and poor together, Psalm 49.2. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. Revelation 13.6, the enemy wants, doesn't care about these categories at the end of the day either. Right? There's just this idea that both there is either people that serve God and people that don't, and all the other categories are human categories. They just don't matter. Nehemiah 3, any real work of God is done next to or after other people in the kingdom of God. The work of God happens in unity. There aren't gaps in the wall when they're done. Gaps would negate the entire project. So they have no compromise on the mission or on the goal, but very different ways to do that mission, very different ways to get the work done with different groups of people. All the work of God, another theme from Nehemiah, it always happens with family. There's, there's people working together with their brothers and sisters, and Christ tells us we're brothers and sisters if we follow him. Those outside the family might be doing other things that are great, but they're not doing the mission with the family or with the kingdom. Another theme from chapter 3, Nehemiah is the leader of this whole thing, but he does not glorify himself in any way, shape, or form. It is not about people that have high status or low status. I think the goldsmith showed, showed us that. There also, incidentally, there's no freewheeling ma mavericks doing creative wall building. Right? They, the mission's very clear. I'm going to build my wall sideways. They're helping each other. They're serving each other. The double portions to me give us another theme from this chapter. These people are working joyfully, and they're excited to be part of it. Those that don't pitch in aren't named. And there are no protests against the non-wall-building Jews out here. The only people that get named are like the leaders of a city that wouldn't, weren't willing to help out, even though they call Yahweh their Lord. Everybody else doesn't even get credit. At the end of chapter 2, you got the enemy mocking them. And in chapter 4, we're going to pick back up with the enemy making all of this work horrible and hard to do. But the people of God, I, they're singing, they're whistling while they work, and the enemy is just not even mentioned in chapter 3. So, last but not least, nobody here is disqualified because of their past or because of their position. And we see that happening here. God only sees servants and non-servants, two groups of people, followers and not followers. The only thing people that get elevated here are the walls and the towers, not the people. People get named. God sees the work. He recognizes the work. But the point of the work isn't for us to get elevated. It's for God's kingdom to be protected. And Nehemiah's primary job here is to share the vision of God's people and then organize and encourage those people to do it. And he's recording it all. So the critics at the end of chapter 2, that last verse of chapter 2, it's almost like Nehemiah's putting chapter 3 as a response to those critics. They're criticizing the work. But you know what? Here's an entire chapter showing how the work got done. And the critics just didn't matter. And they go away. Next in chapter 4, we'll see the critics come back and how they challenge God's work at every step. It's going to go back in time. So this was just kind of the recording of who did the work. But the rest of Nehemiah is going to be the story of how that work got done. It wasn't all bird, butterflies and birdies singing. Right? It wasn't this happy-go-lucky thing that we see in chapter 3. They had some struggles, and we're going to see that that struggle is part of the work of God's people and what they do. But that is for next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the work that we have. Lord, that we are building a house of God stone by stone, and you're the cornerstone. And this image of building is one you used with your disciples, so we look at it carefully. And Lord, we want to be there. We want to do the work and show us what that is. Guide us in that. We know the basics. Worship, study your word, prayer, fellowship. Um, we are always looking ways to, to tell people your story and what's going on, Lord. So help us to be excited about what we're doing, to do it joyfully, to be excited about our brothers and sisters and about this fellowship. Help us to share that with just confidence and, and 
excitement, Lord, to draw people into your work. And everyone's welcome to come into your kingdom and be part of the work of building your church. So we love you, Lord. We seek you. We seek you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Do, 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 do.